Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's Pod the Lab topic is biobanking and invertebrate conservation. All right, so we'll probably get going um, Get going now. Um, Alistair, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, for anyone that doesn't know us, would you be, doesn't know you, would you be able to give us an introduction to your research and, um, and what you do? Yeah, of course. Uh, so most of my work has been in marine ecology and evolutionary biology, uh, and I've worked on a wide range of animals from crustaceans to sea urchins to gastropods to fit and you know also to seagrasses and fish and, and other things um, but I've got a special love for invertebrates and always have um, Tracy I was the course convener for this course and taught it for many years um, so I'm absolutely passionate about learning about invertebrate biology and keen for you as a group of students to you know, learn as much about these animals as possible so that you can then go out and tell other people how wonderful they are and all the reasons why it's well worth studying those. Um, I'm not, I haven't done much work on worms myself, but I've, I've taught them, um, but happy to share what, what I know about worms with you today. Uh, Alistair, so you, having taught the course, you know that they're going to write an essay, science communication essay, to convince the public about an invertebrate and why they're amazing. Um, if you if you had to pick one thing about worms that everyone should know, is there is there one thing that you can pick that you would they'd say everyone has to know about worms? Yeah, so I suspect most students before coming into this course would probably have a a view of a worm as being you know a single thing that you might get in the garden. Uh, but hopefully by the end of this week, students realise that worms are obviously incredibly diverse and there's many, many different types of unrelated animals that we call worms. Uh, and they're really just grouped by having that sort of long, thin, squishy body shape. Um, so the thing that I'd like the students to take away from this week is just the incredible diversity of worms. Um, so they're not just the, there's many, many evolutionary lineages that we call worms. About a third of all the different animal phyla are different types of worms. Um, but there's also incredible diversity in what they do. There's herbivores, there's predators, there's parasites that live inside your body, there's parasites that live outside animals' bodies. Um, there's even things that eat bone. I mean, there's, you can find a worm that will do almost anything you can imagine. Uh, so just the thing that I'd really want people to take away is not just that vision of an earthworm sitting in the dirt in your garden, uh, but the fact that worms are you know, incredibly diverse, both from an evolutionary point of view, but also a functional point of view. Um, they just, you can find worms in many, many habitats doing many, many uh, different things from filter feeders to parasites to predators to herbivores to detritivores. There's scarcely a, a sort of functional role that is not filled somewhere by uh, by worms. Uh, so that, that I would hope allows people to, you know, go out and explain to others why worms are important much more easily than, I mean, earthworms are incredibly important. That's an easy argument. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps a more challenging argument is to convince someone why they should love a leech or why they should <laughs> love a nematode or why they should love a flatworm. Um, but that that's kind of the challenge that I want, you know, we want to get across to you in this course. 
you should be able to chat to your friend or your mother or someone you meet why any of these particular groups is important. Um, so just store up all those stories that you're going to get from, from the demonstrators and from the lecturers about any particular group. Um, so even you can probably, you probably be able to make the earthworm, earthworm argument yourself. You know, you know, they're really important for nutrient cycling in, in the earth soils. Um, but try yourself with some other groups. You know, why should we love a nematode? You might just think, oh, they're a horrible group, a little parasite. Do you, do you have a favourite worm, Alistair? Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, do you have a favourite worm? Oh, a favourite worm. I'm pretty keen on flatworms because I think they are, I mean, they're genuinely cute and the way they're with the little eyes and the way they zip around, um, they've got a bit more personality than many of the worms. Um, having said that, they've got a pretty limited nervous system and incredibly simple animals, but... Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that they've got eyes makes them a bit more relatable than uh, than some of the other worms that live inside. Do any of you guys have a question for Alistair about about worms or any of the content that came up in the worms lectures or the worms labs? Anyone? Otherwise, I'm going to have to go again. Um, just a quick one. Yes, Stella. Uh, just kind of wondering. This is just uh, maybe curious because um, how the coelom made like the coelom kind of develop in the worm? It's like the, um, like the flat worms you mentioned earlier, they pretty much don't have one. And then there's a pseudo one in most nematodes. And by the time you get to the analyst, you can see a, full, a fully developed coelom occurring. How would that actually develop? Yeah, so that so the ability, the sort of the evolutionary transition of animals developing a body cavity is actually one of the really, really big stories in the evolution of animal form. And so you're, we're going to focus in this week on three groups that are really common and really sort of ecologically important. The flatworms, which, as you mentioned, have no body cavities and they just have uh, the, the two body layers. So they're actually very simple and they're in a different lineage to all of the coelomate uh, animals with the true body cavity. Um, so there was an evolutionary transition uh, that where animals started to have a, a body cavity. And, there, and one of the strong, the big arguments for doing that is that it's it's exceptionally difficult to be a solid block of tissue. Okay, so if you think of an animal that is a ball of cells, they've got a real challenge for getting oxygen to the cells in the middle of their body or getting wastes out of the, the cells in the middle of the body. And so if you're going to be solid, then you pretty much have to be flat. And so when you look at a flat worm, all of its cells are pretty close to the surface because you're the waste, you know, the, ex, the getting rid of wastes and getting and getting oxygen uh, and diffusing uh, oxygen into the tissues happens across surfaces, uh, but the processes that use energy and create waste happen as as a sort of function of the volume. And so, one of the huge challenges in getting bigger for any animals is that problem of uh, the sort of volume of animals compared to their surface area. Uh, so, you really can't be a great big animal that is solid. You have to have cavities inside so that you've got a high surface area uh, of tissues close to fluids that we pass, you know, blood and uh, liquids go past to, to bring oxygen, to bring food, to get rid of weight. Um, so that development of the of a body cavity, the coelom, was really a fundamental process in the evolution of animals, which then enabled animals to get larger. And so the annelids that you're looking at this week are in that big lineage of animals that have the three body layers. Body cavity evolve only once or multiple times across evolutionary history? Ah, good question. I, I think once. So if you look at the really big branches in, in animal evolution, so you've already looked at the sponges, uh, which really don't have any true tissues. Then you've got um, 
the bilateral, so that, you know, the radially symmetrical animals with the two body layers, um, you know, the cnidarians and the comb jellies that you've looked at. Uh, and then you've got these tri, the enormous lineage with the three body layers and, and the coelom. Um, so that is right early in that big lineage. It's not something that appeared many, many different times. My understanding is that the body cavity in the nematode, it does have a different origin, and that's why it's called a pseudocelum compared to uh, a true coelom. And it's, so it doesn't have the same... Uh, so the true coelom is is in sort of got mes mesoderm on both sides. Uh, from memory, the, the nematodes have... Uh, cavities formed in a, in a different way. Um, Thomas, you might be able to correct me there, but is that your understanding that the body cavity evolved once and it's basically a defining feature of a huge lineage of multicellular animals? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's definitely correct in that the pseudocelum evolved multiple times. Are different, yeah. Because I think then there's like more than one way to have a pseudocelum. And so yeah. all, there's like a few different homologous ways to actually develop one. Yeah. Nice. Have you got any kind of major players in the worm world that feed on kelp compared to say uh, groups like copepods and, and other crustaceans so i mean no so there are some herbivorous worms um so some of the marine polychaetes uh do eat seaweed and seagrass um, but it's not particularly common um so the more important herbivores of of you know seagrasses and seaweeds are urchins which you're going to look at later in the course uh gastropods uh and a great diversity of crustaceans uh so herbivory in the, in the polychaete worms is actually quite unusual, but it does occur. Um, lots of others will eat algal material by filter feeding. So you, you will have seen there's lots of polychaetes that have these feathery tentacles that, that capture, you know, phytoplankton and all sorts of particles. Um, but in terms of like biting and chewing plant material, that's it's not so common amongst the uh, amongst the annelids. Um, and it wouldn't, I don't think it'd be present at all in the in, in the other marine worms like flatworm, nematodes and the like. There's obviously terrestrial nematodes that are plant pests. So there's lots of nematodes that feed on plant material. Um, and they're a big agricultural pest that needs controlling in many cases. Um, but that's still, it's less a sort of biting, chewing type thing. It's more like they live inside the tissues and and feed on the plant fluids like a, an internal parasite. Um, are they big pests in the marine environment? Worms. Um, Good question. There'll be some, there'll undoubtedly be some, well, so if we're talking worms in general rather than just annelid worm, there are definitely some pests in the aquaculture industry. So there are flatworms and they actually get called, they get called oyster leeches, um, but they're not actual leeches. They are a type of flatworm. They get into oysters and bivalves in, in aquaculture farms and, and there's control. So there's pests examples there. Um, also remember that there's so many parrot, worms that are internal parasites. Uh, so any aquaculture of fish, aquaculture of mollusks, all those sorts of things could be faced with having internal uh, worm parasites, mostly in groups called trematodes, uh, but also probably nematodes as well. So there's just like in all the sort of terrestrial animals, marine animals get internal parasite worms as well. Uh, and so if you're trying to grow marine organisms in aquaculture, then you will have to deal with with worms as pests. There's also some worms that damage structures. Here's, here's a, this is actually confusing though, because there are things called shipworms, which damage wood, but they're actually a mollusk. So that what you have to be careful with, with worms is, and long, a bunch of other common names you'll come across in the course, get used for all sorts of different things. Um, so there are definitely, there are things called shipworms, 
they're long thin mollusks that you know that dig into wood and cause damage to piers and boats. There's probably some polychaete worms that do the same. Um, we've got in a few minutes uh, one of the global experts on polychaete worms, Pat Hutchins, coming from the museum. She would know the answer to that. Uh, but my ma the main response to your question would be. Uh, internal parasites of, in aquaculture of fish and, and mollusks, that's where, where worms would be the biggest problem. The other problem that worms can cause people, marine worms, for example, is that there are, worms are very common on foul, as a fouling organism on surfaces. So if you put hard surfaces down on the ocean, stuff starts growing up straight away, barnacles, all sorts of things. But one of the really, really common organisms to, to start fouling surfaces are tube-building polychaetes called sepulids. We've got these calcareous tubes. And so they start encrusting the surfaces with more and more of these hard substrate. Uh, and it gets, you know, and it's a problem for boats. It's also a problem for uh, water pipes in any sort of marine system. And one of my favourite stories about this is that in places, in some places in Asia, they use seawater to flush toilets. Uh, so my understanding is in Singapore, they actually have to go through and clean the pipes every so often because they get marine worms coming in and, and the diameter of the pipe starts like this and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so there are all sorts of examples around the world where people actually have to manage the abundance of, in this case, marine worms for, for their activity. Also, a huge number of examples of pest worms, obviously in terrestrial systems, parasites and, and agriculture. I'm able to share my screen for a second? Yeah, so much, of course. Yeah, go for it. So, so, so this is an example of the internal parasitic worms that Alistair was talking about. So. So I, I do a lot of uh, beach combing, uh, and one of the things I often like to find along the beach is dead fish uh, washed up. And I took this photo uh, of a small fish that had washed up. Uh, it wasn't until I actually got home that someone, when I had posted it online, uh, pointed out that there were actually two little parasitic worms. So you can see those two little nice. white structures there. Nice. <laughs> those are actually uh, monogenes. Those are flukes. So that's one group of worm that you would have read about uh, during the week. So that, that's kind of what they can often look like uh, inside the fish. Thomas, you do a lot of collecting of organisms along rocky shores and beaches. Do you find a lot of worms on other organisms you collect and photograph? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I think if only because worms are so soft-bodied uh, and so a lot of the time when you're dealing with stuff on the beach they've and they've washed up, they've either rapidly abandoned ship uh, and tried to get back into the water because they know it's a death sentence uh, having washed up or they've just completely desiccated. Uh, and so what you would have recognised as a worm is now just a little shriveled husk. So certainly you will find lots of the circulate worms that Alistair mentioned. So you won't find the worms themselves uh, anymore, but you will see uh, the remnants, the traces of them in terms of their, their little calcareous burrows. So often those are little spiral shapes. So a lot of times on things like seashells, uh, or even just random debris washing up, you know, pieces of plastic. You'll find little uh, calcium carbonate tubes that are covering all the pieces of debris. So those are quite common. Uh, although one cool one that you do find uh, washed up, uh, which I can show is a very cool polychaete um, called Amphenome rostrata. Uh, so this is a pelagic polychaete. So it exclusively lives on the open ocean and it hunts and feeds on goose barnacles. Uh, it's pretty much like a, a hyperspecialist. And so sometimes you'll find objects washed up onto the beach uh, that are covered in goose barnacles. And in and among them, uh, you'll find these really cool uh, polychaetes. So they can get quite big, uh, up to 20 to 30 centimetres long. And they're, they're com completely jet black and they have all along the sides, they're covered in these uh, white uh, prickles. or they're, they're kind of like 
they're, well, they're kete, so they're, they're modified hair, and they're quite spiky and they can give you quite a nasty sting uh, if you touch them. Uh, and you'll see, if you go close up, you can actually see how they feed on the binding. This was a small specimen uh, that I found washed up. And this is its proboscis uh, everted. So normally this would be inside the worm. And so it basically everts its proboscis and then swallows the goose barnacles whole uh, and then just sucks them down. Uh, off the object that that's what that's quite a quite a desiccated one but those uh that's probably one of my one of my favorite finds uh and they're, they're actually a cool example because if everyone who watched pat's lecture she talked about the perils of misidentifying uh, very similar groups of organisms and how you often get many polychaetes around the world where they've just been treated as one species whereas actually if you go to different parts of the world uh it's not just highly likely, but but it is the case that there are it's a cryptic complex and there might be five, six, 10, 15 different species that all look very similar. It's probably exactly the same case with this species, where at the moment it's considered to be this global species that's found across the world's oceans. But really, when you start looking at images of it online from the Pacific Ocean, the Indian, the Atlantic, there's some real noticeable differences that you think probably aren't accountable uh, by just uh, variation across the different habitats and that it's probably 99.9% .9 certain that what we're calling Amphenoma strata is probably at least five to six different species that for each one has a much more restricted distribution, but they've all kind of just honed in on this, this same way of living and, and the same way of feeding. One of the, we were talking before about how, like if storing up these stories, if you wanted to convince other people that, <laughs> You know, you should know about invertebrate phylogy. One of the nice ways to do that is to think about what are the animals that are going to hurt you? Um, so Thomas has showed a marine worm that would actually sting you. And there's quite a few others that have quite a nasty sting if you touch the spines. Some of the big marine worms can actually give you a quite nasty bite. Um, so they've got chitinous jaws and they can actually nip you. Uh, and then if you think about, so think about the terrestrial worms, um, nearly everyone knows that leeches, uh, you know, can obviously uh, you know, take blood from humans and you end up with a big itchy spot and lots <laughs> of blood everywhere. Uh, and then you've got obviously all of the range of parasitic worms that actually cause pretty serious disease in humans. Uh, so if you consider the full diversity of worms, it's actually very easy to find examples where worms have, you know, considerable impact on, on human population. That doesn't necessarily help you convincing people that they're wonderful, but it does help you convince people that they are important and damaging uh, so we spend a lot of money trying to control worms. So think about how much is spent on worming medicines for your cats and dogs and your pets or for your children. <laughs> Any yeah, kids, so yeah. I, yeah, so most of you would have had worms at some point. I've got young kids, they had worms and we gave them tablets. It's just a, it's a common thing. In that case, they're nematodes. Um, so we spend a lot of effort trying to control worms in our own population, in our pets, um, absolutely in agricultural animals, the amount of money and effort spent controlling tapeworms and heartworms and liver flukes and you name it in our cows and pigs and horses, et cetera, is enormous. Uh, so it's very easy to find examples of why worms have a big impact. One of the things that I really like too about parasites, you could have an entire course about parasites. They're so interesting. <laughs> um, they're pretty gory. There's all sorts of horrible stories of, you know, worms coming out of people's eyes and things like that. But there's lots of really interesting examples of how the parasites affect the behaviour of the host. And I don't know if you gave some of those tracing the lectures, but there's some really nice examples of how worms, once they're into a host, they then affect the behaviour of the host that then makes them more likely to pass the 
worms onto others. And even really common things like the worms that, you know, we get in human populations as kids do actually impact behaviour. Uh, so, for example, there's, it's known that there's a link between you know, the attention span of kids in school and whether they've got worms or not. You know, so they're itchy and they can't quite focus. And so there's a link actually between even truancy and people leaving school and levels of, of intestinal worms. And so it's just as you're reading these things about parasites, and yes, they're all gory and horrible, mm -hmm. but think about all these wonderful examples of the, like it's really clever biology for uh, for many of these hosts to manipulate the behaviour of, sorry, many of the worms to manipulate the behaviour of their parasite, of their host, to then increase the chance of being passed on to the next uh, to the next stage. Lots of really, really good stories around that. Um, there's a couple of lectures in the chat, Alistair. Uh, oh, sorry, sure. Yeah, the pharynx is close to the middle of many flatworms. Do you know why this is? As opposed to being close to the head. Yeah, uh, I, I can take I can take a guess. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure actually. From the way that good, I've so this is question purely purely conjecture from <laughs> having se having seen terrestrial flatworms uh, predate on things. So if if you if you, you a lot of you have probably seen blue garden flatworms. So they're one that you'll just see in your backyard. They're kind of very dark, almost black, with a pale stripe down the middle. And you often see them pop up in your garden after rain. Uh, and they'll feed on other small terrestrial invertebrates, things like millipedes and, and snails and things like that. And from when I have seen them preying on things, they actually kind of completely wrap their body around the prey. Uh, so my logic is that if, if their pharynx was at the head, end, then the prey is just going to likely get away from them because they don't have any limbs. They, they're basically a, a flat tube that doesn't really have much going uh, in the way of being able to hold something down uh, if you're trying to attack it just with your head end. Whereas the flatworm, obviously, once it gets itself around, it can then kind of smother the prey or at least encircle the prey so that it can't get away. And then that means the middle of the body is now directly over the prey and it's just probably more convenient. I don't know if that is correct or if it's just completely bogus, but... <laughs> Uh, it would seem that if it, was, if it was at the front of the worm, that uh, if it tries to start feeding on something, then that prey is just going to try and skid out. There's another one in here. How did worms evolve from a non-parasitic to parasitic lifestyle? Yes, another good question. So, um, so you actually think about this in terms of the whole course. So as you go right through the course, you're going to see examples of parasites in very, very many groups that are unrelated to each other. So clearly the ability to you know, feed off the living tissues of another organism is a very common strategy. And it's clearly not something that's evolved just once. It's evolved many, many times. Uh, and the, 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 the selection pressures to do that are, are really as simple as big animals are food. Um, so you, if you're a small animal and you need to eat something, there's no reason why you don't have to eat the whole thing. You can just latch on uh, and start to eat bits of it. Uh, so you, there are many, many examples in the worms, but later on in the course, you'll see all sorts of parasitic insects and there's parasitic crustaceans, there's parasitic groups in, in many, many different invertebrate groups. Um, so it's evolved lots and lots of times because that food resource is out there. Bigger animals will almost guaranteed have parasites of various types, which is why there's such incredible diversity of parasites because Many of the relationships are quite host-specific, so a parasite will often not feed on many, many hosts, but just a few of them. Um, a good thing to think about when you're going from all the different groups that are parasites is to think about what sort of 
body modifications have happened in order to be parasitic. Um, so even if you're looking at animals that are unrelated, so you might later on you might see these parasitic copepods that live on fish, or you might see a parasitic worm or a leech that lives on the outside of you know of a, of a moose or something. Have a think about what sorts of structures they have in common. So if you're going to be an ectoparasite, then what they normally have is some sort of sucker or some sort of hooks. Um, so they're basically trying to latch on to the outside tissues of the organism. And so the the uh, trematodes that Thomas just mentioned, uh, there, are, there are external ones that have got little suckers. Leeches are a great example. You've got a sucker on either end. Uh, and lots of the other parasitic animals will have hooks or various sort of structures to enable them to hang on and not, not fall off. If you consider the internal parasites, then quite often we see really big modifications to body form. If you're living inside the tissues and the bodily fluids of another organism, then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of things that you don't actually need anymore. Um, you know, maybe you don't need eyesight, you don't need you know, complex respiratory structures because you're basically bathed in a fluid of, of oxygenated blood or oxygenated you know, bodily fluid. And so in many cases, the internal parasites, you start to see the loss of a whole bunch of structures that, that you might have had otherwise. So think about that when you go from worms to crustaceans to other parasitic groups. Try to identify the common features that they have when they're ectoparasites or the common features in many cases that they lose uh, when they're endoparasites. I can see Pat's joined us. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Pat. Uh, quickly, Alistair, before you go, one of the students has asked, uh, what is the best, safest way of removing a leech? Oh, question. Yeah. It's salt, isn't it? Isn't salt the recommended? Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, it's that, probably changed. I'm, yeah, I think that's kind changed. of shifted along now in that generally I think the consensus is that salt kind of aggravates the leech and is more likely to make it eject stuff into yeah. uh, the wound. I think you can just get a fingernail underneath. Uh, you put pull the skin a bit taut uh, around the bite get a fingernail underneath and then just kind of flick it off. Yeah. I um I have a I have a horror story on that one for you. When I back in the back when I was an undergrad, my first invertebrate biology course was at freshwater invertebrate biology. And we were up in a creek up in the rainforest and the lecturer at the time got a leech on his eye, but it actually crawled behind his eyeball. And uh, the advice from the the uh, ophthalmologist was just to let it do its thing and crawl its way out. It would find its way back out. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit off-putting for all the students. <laughs> but he was fine. It crawled its way out. Yeah. Where, like, it would have to be one of the worst places ever. No, it's just hanging out in the back of your eyeball. Like and not, um, I mean, as Thomas mentioned, you want to avoid having those ectoparasites, you know, spit fluids back into you because that's when infections become more likely. I don't think leeches are associated with many infections you know, bad bacterial infections like like ticks are. Um, so it just yeah. causes a lot of blood and and the bites are really itchy afterwards. Yeah. Quite some time. But I, yeah, I'm not a big fan, but I, I like yeah. ticks much less. Yeah. Because uh, you can actually get. Yeah. You, you guys would have seen in the in the lecture the, the video of um, the person putting one on their arm and that characteristic, you know, wound that, that was left behind from the from where it was attaching. But, yeah. Super interesting. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.